on the morning of February 4th, 1555, which would be 469 years and one week ago today, Pastor John Rogers was roused from his sleep, not given much time to dress himself, and then marched down the streets of Smithfield, London, where he had been doing the work of a pastor, right up to within eye's view of the Church of the St. Sepulchre, where he had preached. And on the side of the road, as he went, were his wife and ten children, one of them still nursing. He had not seen them in several months because he was not allowed, they were not allowed to visit him in prison. Rogers had been known for helping William Tyndale and Miles Coverdale translate one of the first English Bibles, what's known as the Matthew Bible, and the transition or the translation had made him a marked man now that Queen Mary was back on the throne and had been for a little over a year and was seeking to bring England back to the Roman Catholic Church. Yet now Mary would begin to purge the church leaders like Rogers who denied the real presence of Christ in the bread and the cup of the Eucharist. In his trial, Rogers said, I was asked whether I believed the sacrament to be the very body and blood of our Savior Christ, really and substantially. I answered, I think it be false. When Pastor Rogers arrived at the stake where he was to be burned, a Mr. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, asked Mr. Rogers, Pastor Rogers, if he would revoke his abominable doctrine. Mr. Rogers answered, That which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Mr. Woodruff replied, Thou art a heretic. Rogers said, That shall be known on the day of judgment. Well, said Mr. Woodruff, I will never pray for thee. Rogers rejoined, but I will pray for you. Rogers was then tied to the stake. The, set, the sticks about him were lit, and he burned to death, apparently washing his hands in the flames that consumed him. He would be the first Protestant martyr under Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary. Last week, Pastor Tony asked us to consider what unrighteous leaders look like, drawing from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 9. And we saw in that passage that men like Janus and Jambres opposing Moses, so Paul said that these men, in the words of Tony, had the wrong loves, even if they had the right look. They pursue the vulnerable. Tony observed, and they opposed the truth. Well, Pastor John Rogers opposed such unrighteous leaders. He opposed them to the very point of giving up his life. How was he able to do that? Would we be able to do that? We'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this week's biblical text helps us know how we can persist in right belief and living amidst opposition. Our passage is verses 10 to 17. I'll begin reading in verse 8 just to give a tiny bit of context. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. 
men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, however, looking back to the unrighteous leaders and teachers, you, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, verses 10 and following offer us the antidote, as it were, to living persisting in godliness amidst opposition, even persecution. And I've summarized our passage with four questions. Look at page eight of your bulletin. Four questions to be asking ourselves. I want you to be asking yourself these questions, and that's the outline for our time. Four questions for persisting in right believing and living amidst opposition. Question one. Can I name the people I follow? And are they the ones who taught me the gospel? Look at verse 10 again. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And look at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. When I was in the fifth grade, that locates us in 1983, a trend caught on of wearing bandanas underneath Izod polo shirts. And so sure enough, I began wearing a bandana kind of underneath the collar there, so you could see it a little bit, of Izod polo shirts. Now, why did I do that? Well, I did that because Doug Alberti did it, and Chris Pfeiffer, and Mike Reed, and Josh Kehoe. Don't ask me why my brain holds on to those, and I don't always remember my children's names. There it is. Now, in the sixth grade, however, parachute pants became very popular, and so, because those same guys were wearing them, I also wore parachute pants. Now, in the seventh grade, however, uh, my, I kind of changed friend groups a little bit, and my best friend was named Joel Heveland, and Joel was a little bit more of a punk rocker, right? So he had the black shirt, you know, buttoned to the top, and then cut-up jeans, and then black boots sort of thing, and I, too, went in that direction, starting in the seventh grade. We follow and imitate 
the people that we like or love or want to be like. And of course, it's not just the clothes that we wear, it's the way we laugh, what we value, our behavior generally. I remember my daughters observing when they were younger, Dad, whenever you're with a guy friend, you always do the man hug. You go in with one hand and then you slap once on the back. Well, that's, that's what, what guys do, sweetheart. Or they observe that you and your brothers, Michael and Philip, all laugh the same way. You all do this. <laughs> and then I notice, yeah, Philip and Michael do that as well. What's with that? Are we just following the crowd? We follow people's loves. We follow their behaviors, their values, their moralities. Do you really think that the dramatic shift that's occurred in the last few decades over matters of sexuality and gender is because people have been undergoing rigorous intellectual investigation and argumentation? Or is it that, you know, some of our favorite shows on TV feature such people, Will and Grace, and so we just go with the crowd. We do what everybody around us does. Friends, that's how culture works. That's how human formation in many respects works. And my point is not that such imitation is bad. And that we should instead be these utterly autonomous masters of self-creation, chiseling out our own granite personalities, ignoring everything else around us. Like some early 20th century novel. Self-creation, no, that's not true. Self-creation is a myth. We are social and relational creatures. That's how God designed us, and it's good. The question is, who are you following? Who are you imitating? And if you think you're not following anyone, patting your life, your values, your beliefs, the way you laugh, the way you dress after others, you don't know yourself very well. Christianity works by the same principle of formation by imitation. And the center of our faith, of course, is somebody that we follow, Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. We follow him, Matthew 4, 19. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Yet not only that, we don't just follow Jesus, we follow the ones Jesus puts into our lives to help follow. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. I urge you then to be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Now, what makes Christianity unique compared to other forms of imitation, replication, formation, is that we follow as one follows Christ, according to his word. Remember your leaders, I just read, those who spoke to you the word of God. I'm following a person as he follows Christ and the word of God. 
So the first question for you this morning, just as a matter of little self-interrogation, self-investigation, is who are you following? I'd encourage you even right now to write down a a few names. I'm serious. I want you to go through the exercise of writing down a couple. Nobody else is going to look at the list. This is just between you and Jesus. Write down a couple of the names of people who you would say you follow. Friends, colleagues, uh, celebrities, somebody at the top of your field, Taylor Swift, who do you follow? Authors you enjoy, who are influencing the way you think. Look at verse 10 again. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. I I couldn't help but notice all the mys. My this, my that, my that. It's very personal, isn't it? You have have Timothy there thinking of his discipler, Paul. Okay, Paul's faith, Paul's steadfastness, and Paul's persecutions. Who, friends, who are you following? You're following somebody. Are they building you up in the most holy faith, as Paul did with Timothy, such that you would be willing to follow them into persecution? That's one way we can persist in godly living and believing amidst persecution, is is we find people to follow who we know, yeah, that, that brother, that sister. They would be like John Rogers. They would keep going. Another kind of related question is, have the people that you have been following changed from the people who first brought you into the gospel? That's a question to be concerned about. Certain people introduced the gospel to me. I knew, I found new faith in Christ, but little by little over time, those voices caught my attention. Started to veer in that direction. Pay attention to that if that characterizes you. Friend, take care of who you're listening to. None of us are incapable of being led astray. Every one of us. Let me also flip the question around. Not just can you name the people you're following or being discipled by, can you name the people you're trying to disciple? Uh, men, other, other men in the congregation, women, other women in the congregation, that you are deliberately kind of names. If I write another list, okay, these are the names of people I'm trying to encourage in this congregation. Would there be any names on that list that you're praying for, that you're sure to offer a special word of encouragement to? I remember one of you came to me once seeking to grow in the faith. Jonathan, how can I grow? And one of the questions I asked was, okay, what... What people are you looking out for in in the congregation? Lean into that, brother. Because part of growing as a Christian is feeding, but part of it is helping others eat. Part, Part of growing as a Christian is being a consumer, but part of it is also being a producer. Those who follow Christ... If Jesus said, follow me, and if I'm following him, that means I'm going to try to get others to help follow him. Following him means getting others to follow him as I follow Christ. Do you see? The two go together. Question one, who are you following? 
Question two. Am I willing to be opposed for living a godly life? A little self-examination right now for everyone in here. Okay, at work, at school, at my neighborhood, am I willing to be opposed for living a godly life? Look at verses 12 and 13 again. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is persecution really promised to Christians? Yes. And notice the emphasis right here. It's, it's not just because, hey, I'm a Christian, opposition. It's because I desire to live a godly life that I'm going to be, you, we are going to be opposed. Uh, an employer asks you to fudge the numbers. You know you can't do that. A friend at school wants you to participate in gossip and slander. You know you can't do that. A colleague asks you to affirm their sexuality. You know, in love, you can't do that. College friends want you to get drunk with them. You desire to live a godly life. can't do that. Neighbors want to, uh, you to join them in certain illegal activities. You desire to live a godly life. You can't do that. And therefore, people start to oppose you. They, maybe they make fun of you. Maybe they break off the friendship. Maybe they hurt your career or more. Uh, one of you recently was sharing a testimony with me about how when you became a Christian in college, other friends effectively left you behind, disfellowshipped you as it were. I, I, I have a college friend who won't talk to me anymore because I, I brought up Jesus one too many times with him. And of course, Paul's phrase, in Christ Jesus, anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus suggests that he does have more explicit forms of opposition to Christianity for being a Christian in mind here as well. So I remember one day walking into my boss's office and he's, uh, my boss said, uh, so Jonathan, you uh, handling rattlesnakes back there in your office? And I said, well, what are you talking about, Dave? Oh, you know, you born-agains, you're handling your rattlesnakes and all that stuff. Ah, I see. That's, that's the conversation we're having. That was consistent with the way he treated me. Now, in many ways, look, that, that, that's a trivial example. I, I could point you to my friend Harshit, however, a pastor in Lucknow, India. Molotov cocktails thrown into his church building. And his response, well, that's kind of typical. Not a big deal. Really? Praise God for your brother. Uh, this happens to churches and pastors and church members around the world. Uh, several summers ago, you guys sent me to, and my family to the United Christian Church of Dubai to preach there for several weeks. Uh, and one of the interns, one of the pastoral interns at uh, United Christian Church of Dubai, went after his internship, his pastoral internship, went back to his Muslim nation in Africa where he was quickly and immediately opposed for being a Christian and somebody with whom he had shared the gospel and who had become a convert was killed on the beach. The authorities then blamed this man, this pastoral intern, stuck him in prison and threatened to assault him if he wouldn't renounce the faith. 
And friends, this is in many respects the story of Christianity for 2,000 years. Now, these are gratefully more extreme cases, yet whether we're talking about light opposition or severe, why would Jesus promise persecution? That promise right there gives us all the opportunity to reflect on the very heart and essence of our faith. Why would persecution be an ordinary, and if he's right, all will be persecuted, a uniform part of the Christian life? What it is about Christianity that garners that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why would this be? Well, it's, it's true only if the lordship of Christ stands in opposition to the lords and rulers of this world. Look at verses 12 and 13 together. You have a desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and then you have a desire, verse 13, evil people and impostors who will go on from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived. We live for a different administration, friends. We live according to a different kingdom. And the kingdoms of this world are opposed to the kingdom of Christ. That's what you signed up for by becoming a Christian. I hope that was clear to you. Now, recently, my wife and I have been watching um, Madam Secretary, about a Secretary of State and her, her husband, who is a, a spy handler. And in a recent episode, he is trying to encourage this young Russian officer who's about to go back to Russia to be a spy for America in Russia. And he's counting the cost of, if he's caught, not just prison, but potentially his life. Nations hate spies because they oppose that nation. Friends, to become a Christian is to become something even more significant in that regard than a spy. Because you represent and are working on behalf, and unlike a spy, even openly, another kingdom. This is not the kingdom that we live in. What's wrong with you? You're opposing what I want. I spent two days last week in Chicago talking to pastors about faith and politics, and for my politically engaged friends in the room, whether you lean rightward or leftward, are the voices that you're listening to tempting you to put your hopes in this nation over and against the kingdom of Christ, such that it undermines your ability to hear this verse, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, am I saying Christians should abandon politics? No more than I'd say we should abandon any of our careers and seeking to work out a life in this world with love for our neighbors and love for our families. Of course not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, let's remember our priorities. Let's remember our expectations. We, we love our neighbor in whatever domain, including the political domain, by seeking to do good work, seeking justice, but we don't put our trust in horses and chariots, as the psalmist said it. We are friends on enemy territory, like those spies. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be 
persecuted? Am I living the kind of life that would provoke such opposition? If not, is it the Christian life I'm living? Or substitute? Now, I have to admit, when I, I read this verse, I'm just like, ah. Oh. I, I read it with some dread. Like, does it really have to be that way? I think about it like this. Suppose somebody started to mock your spouse or your children. How would you respond? I, I trust you'd get up in their face and say, no, you don't. Why? Because you love your spouse. You love your children. No, I'm going to oppose you if you oppose them. Now that's clear to us, I think. Do we love Christ? When people oppose our Lord and Savior, are we willing to say, no, you don't. You oppose him, you oppose me. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He's a good Lord. You, you, you should follow him. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do we love Jesus? Do we want to stand up for him? I think many of you would. I think many of you do. I'm encouraged by that. I've seen enough of your lives, enough of your faith, to know that many of you would stand up. And I'm encouraged by that, friends. And so I exhort you to keep going. I think you would be like the apostles. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Again, I trust many of you would count it worth rejoicing to suffer honor for the, dishonor for the sake of the name. Friends, let's, let's be that kind of congregation together. Question two, am I willing to be opposed for living a godly life? Question three, I want to ask you, I want you to ask yourself this morning, you see in your, your handout, is my knowledge of Scripture growing, growing or shrinking? Is my knowledge of Scripture growing or shrinking? Verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. So Paul exhorts Timothy, he exhorts us to continue in what we have believed, in the things that we have believed from the sacred writings, from Scripture. I've said to a couple of you that I've noticed over time that the Christians who are reading their Bible consistently, there is a kind of one-to-one -one ratio of those who are growing in the faith and those who are not reading their Bible and growing in their understanding of the Bible, kind of a, a plateauing and eventually a decline in the faith, one-to-one. -one. Yet let me add to that point something else I've seen in myself over the decades is that I'm either growing in the knowledge of Scripture or in some sense I am shrinking in it. But what was it? What was that verse? What was that, that story? I, just, oh, I can't. Now, to justify myself, some of that's age. But it is also 
Am I diligently seeking the scriptures out and a knowledge of it? Because friend, if you're not, you will forget it. How many of you can remember your high school math books? Sine, cosine. What, what was that all about? I took four years of German. I remember one phrase. Von Haas du Geburtstag. When's your birthday? That literally is the only German I remember. Why? As I'm not studying it. I'm not living it. I'm not speaking it. Friends, your, your knowledge of Scripture, your knowledge of God's ways, your knowledge of your salvation, what God intends for you, is going to grow? It's going to shrink. That's how the brain works. The mind works. That's how the heart works. And what your heart is loving and valuing, getting stronger in. Which is it? It's not enough to know it. You've got to continue in it. As Paul tells Timothy, to continue in it. I didn't continue in German. I need to continue. You need to continue in a knowledge of God's word. I, I've, I've done different things over the years to grow in my knowledge. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is just I take uh, a cut and paste out of BibleGateway.com. I cut and paste a, a book, a whole book, into a Word document, and then I, I put in headings and subheadings on my own. It forces me to read through the whole book and understand it in its different parts. It doesn't require any knowledge of the language. It doesn't even require helps, commentaries as such. Sometimes I'll look at the commentaries, but what I'm doing is just I just have that, that book of the Bible, Colossians. Recently, I've, I've done Matthew. I'm just looking at the whole thing. Okay, what are the, what are the basic divisions and then the subdivisions? And that's forcing me to study it and understand it. Other times, I'll just, I'll just read through whole books of the Bible. I did that a lot when I was younger, trying to get a sense of the whole. That was a common thing. Uh, understanding, I'm not going to understand everything, uh, but I'm going to get a 30,000-foot view. This is useful. Uh, sometimes I just read a psalm and a proverb in the morning. I just don't have a lot of time, but I know I need something. I'll do that. There's no one right way to study Scripture. And if you need help, talk to me or one of the elders or any number of people in the room. Hey, what do you what do you what do you do, friend? To help you study. And maybe sometimes I get into a rut, and so I have to kind of switch around what I'm doing, right? And and I find that can be helpful as well. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, said Paul to Timothy, and so with us. A fourth question to help us persist in believing amidst opposition. Here it is: Can I defend the doctrines of Scripture's inspiration? And sufficiency. You see that number four? Can I defend, can I articulate, can I explain doctrine of Scripture's inspiration, doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency? In other words, we need to know not just what the Bible says. Paul is adamant that we know what the Bible is. Look at verses 15 to 17 again, latter half of 15. Sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, these two verses, or these three verses, tell us two things about what the Bible is. First, the Bible is inspired it's breathed out by God. And second, see that in verse 16, and second, it is sufficient. You see that at the end of 15, 
able to make you wise for salvation, but not just salvation, but then growing in the faith. You see that in 16. It is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. In verse 17, that the man of God may be equipped, or complete, equipped for every good work. Is there something else I need to be complete? Nope. You need the Bible. And following other Christians, following the Bible, and knowing what the Bible says, and knowing what the Bible is. The Bible is sufficient. So, kids, if you're ever asked in school to write a paper on the doctrine of Scripture's inspiration or sufficiency, or or adults, if you ever decide to take a seminary class and, and, and you're writing that paper, this verse, and a couple of others, is one of the best ones to look to. And so for that reason, since we're going through the text, and here we are in one of the Bible's high points on the doctrine of Scripture, I thought it was worth us taking a few moments just to consider doctrine on this matter, inspiration, sufficiency, very clearly. As one of my jobs as an elder is to equip you with, with, with the same knowledge of what Scripture is. So first, what is the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture? What, what does Paul mean by breathed out? Or literally, the word there is just God-breathed. Scripture is God-breathed. Well, look at page 9 of your bulletin, where I offer one definition. And this, this, this is from Steve Wallum, who is, I like to refer to him as my own theological Yoda. He trained me and helped me think. In his two-volume systematic, he writes this. Inspiration is the extraordinary or supernatural work of the triune God, in and through the Holy Spirit, on the human authors of Scripture, so that their freely composed writings are what God intended them to write in order to communicate the truth, His truth, and as such, they are completely authoritative and trustworthy. So notice a, a couple of things in that definition. First, it's the work of the triune God through the Holy Spirit. It's God breathed so that you can have confidence that the words of Scripture are the words of God. When we say it's inspired, we don't mean it's inspiring. Oh, this is so encouraging. That author, man, he was inspired. Just great stuff. No, we mean it was spirated, inspirated, breathed out by God. So that what the Bible says, what Scripture says, brothers and sisters, you can trust God says. My wife sends me a text on the way home. Please pick up some milk. That text is her word. She said it. And so the Bible is what God, it's sentences, it's words, it's sentences, it's, it's paragraphs, it's stories, it's books, it's testaments were breathed out by God in the original autographs the original languages. Uh, different theologians over the centuries, of course, have fiddled with this. If you look at the 18th, 19th, early 20th century liberal theologians, they wanted to take God out of it, make it a more like, inspiring sense. It's just like any other human book. But, you know, these were religious guys. They'd maybe, maybe they'd seen some stuff and they wrote down their opinions. Uh, mid-20th century, a number of theologians' names like Karl Barth, you might have heard, came along and said, well, no, 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 that's... That's not quite right. It is God's word, 
But what it is, is is sort of a testimony to God's word. So Hannah hears my wife say, bring home milk. And so then Hannah tells me, bring home milk. Well, it's it's my wife's word, but only indirectly through Hannah. That, That would be another more recent theory theologians, some theologians have used to sort of explain away the divinity of this text. None of this is right. Scriptures, God breathed, breathed out by God, said Paul. Or look at Peter's description. I put that in the middle of page nine for you. First, Second Peter one twenty one. For no prophecy ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the original autograph, Scripture did not come from the will of man, but men spoke from God, carried along by the Spirit. So does this mean the Bible is mere dictation? Paul, Peter, John, Isaiah, Ezekiel were sitting there at the the computer and God's kind of walking around in their room and he's like, okay, uh, say this. In the beginning was the Word. And they're like, okay, got it, got it. Is that what happened? No, no, that's not what happened. Uh, Think about how Luke begins his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, Luke, also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. These were, as our definition said, freely composed human writings. Uh, There you have an author of Scripture, Luke, going about doing research, compiling reports, listening to testimonies, just as some of you might do in school. So from a human perspective, he is going through all the steps of of writing something down. Or, or, Or think of Paul, 2 Corinthians 2. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction, and anguish of heart, and with many tears. Okay, there's Paul. He's thinking of the Corinthians. He's like, oh, I love them. I'm, 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 I'm weeping for them, and I'm writing down this letter to, to the Corinthians. So there's Paul engaged in a fully human activity of letter writing with all the emotions and ambitions and intents of a letter writer, just as you and I would do. Nonetheless, as Luke did that, as Paul did that, as all the scriptures have did that, men spoke from God. And what they wrote was God breathed, carried along by the Holy Spirit. A a word theologians sometimes use for this is concurrence. Just think about two currents, but con, with each other. Concurrence. The human is doing this, and God is doing this. Same time, same words on the page. Fully divine, fully human in its authorship. Men spoke from God. Scripture is God-breathed, which makes it unlike any other book, any other text we would listen to, we would read. It's why we gather together every week and place God's word at the center of our lives. We'll think about more that next week. If you just kind of peek at chapter four, how does Paul apply it? Peek at chapter four real quick. What does he say? Therefore, in light of this, what I'm telling you in verses 16 and 17, preach the word. It's authoritative. It's true. It is 
sufficient. Okay, what, what is Scripture? So we thought about his inspiration. Well, what is what does its sufficiency mean? Because it's inspired, it's also sufficient. Sufficiency is a property of its inspiration, kind of in that order. It's inspired, therefore it's true, therefore it's authoritative, therefore it's sufficient. Well, look at the definition of sufficiency we offer on, I offered on page 9. And this is taken from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is just a version of the Baptist version of the Westminster Confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God, the government of the church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered according to the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Notice first, towards the beginning of that statement, the Bible gives us everything which is necessary for salvation and faith and life. In other words, don't listen to teachers like Muhammad who come along with new revelation which they say is necessary. Teachers like Joseph Smith, who also have new revelation, which be the key to understanding the old revelation. Don't listen to the Pope, Bloody Mary, who say, no, we have the only interpretive way of understanding this because we are in line with the magisterium of the church, the capital T tradition of the church, so that scripture and tradition are equa, primary, equal, together in what is necessary for life and salvation. Do not listen to them, says this statement, says Peter and Paul. Now we need the inward illumination to recognize Scripture's truth and significance and weight. I can read it and understand it actually, intellectually, until, but, but, but that's no good for me until the Spirit comes along and is like, psh, turns on the light so that you're like, ah, oh, okay, I get it now. That makes sense. And my goodness, I am in my sin. Oh, there's a holy God. I know you've been saying for years, Jonathan, you're in your sin and there's a holy God, but I mean, I understood what you're saying, but I, I can get it. And now I get it. Okay, that's the doctrine of illumination, you see. And the Holy Spirit does that in our hearts and lives. And notice, notice also the Bible doesn't specify. It doesn't say gather it. Uh, in an elementary school gym at 10.30 on a Sunday morning. Try to turn the heat on if you can. It, it doesn't say that. Rather, it says everything we need for life and salvation together is Christ's church. Though some things will have to be determined by circumstances and things that are common to human actions and society. Certain prudential questions that we have to answer as we seek to live out God's word. Apply God's word to life together. And from day one of Chevrolet Baptist Church, which we planted six years and two weeks ago, 464 years after John Rutherford's death, the elders have sought to lead us according to that conviction. Now, various strategies and programs will use to lead us according to that conviction, ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, 
that's useful for leading a church. We're not saying this is the only way a church must do its liturgy. We're not saying these are the only songs that you have to sing. No, we're not even saying this is the only way you can structure and go about a sermon as such. No, this is the only way you, you teach kids is through a Wana or, or through a Chevrolet Day and having a booth. there. We're not saying these are the only ways to do it. These are things that we're all ordering according to the light of nature and Christian prudence. Nonetheless, in all of these things, we are seeking to do this according to the general rules of the word which are always to be obeyed. That's what we gather to do as a church. Scripture is sufficient. We don't need anything else. Here's the key, pastor. Do it this way. Here's the program, pastor. You must have this if you want to see an evangelistic explosion. Well, some of that stuff might be helpful. But none of those things is necessary. The only thing that's necessary is what's in the book. And so that's what we're going to govern and guide our lives together by. Sometimes Christians read their statements of faith or various statements of faith out loud. I want us to do that now, actually. What is our statement of faith about Scripture? Look at the bottom of page 9. What did you affirm about the Bible when you joined this church? Read it aloud together with me. We believe the Holy Bible was written by people who were divinely inspired and that it is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction. God is its author. Salvation is its purpose and truth. Without any mixture of error is its content. Scripture reveals the principles by which God will judge us. Therefore, it is now and will be to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard for evaluating all conduct, creeds, and opinions. Uh, friends, you might save this in this bulletin. And this week in your family worship time or just maybe even your own quiet times, look over that statement, ask questions about it, and remind yourself of what you have affirmed about what not just the Bible says, but about what the Bible is. It is a perfect treasure, as we affirm, of heavenly wisdom. Do you dig into that chest, that treasure chest, hoping for treasure, knowing that you will find treasure there? How will we, to conclude, persist in right believing and living amidst a world that will oppose us? Now, looking at those four questions again, we will name the ones who have led and rightly helped us to follow in the way of Christ. We will own the fact that following Christ means living in opposition to this world. We've signed up to be spies, open spies. Nations hate spies. We will continue to study Scripture because Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for becoming the complete person. How did John Rogers persist in opposition even to the point of being burned at the stake? Well, several passages of Scripture encouraged him in those final months, days, and hours. He thought of John 14's promise of Jesus preparing a mansion for him. He thought of Hebrews 12 and the example of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. As Rogers walked up to the stake where he was to be burned, over people listening to him heard him recounting over and over Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Repeating that over and over. And as the crowd saw him walking steadily and unflinchingly to the stake, their enthusiasm for him burst forth in thunderous applause on his behalf. The French ambassador to England was there, and later he wrote home, Rogers walked to his death, quote, as if he was walking to his wedding. Apparently, Rogers knew who he most loved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for loving you too little. We thank you for the love you have given, the belief you have given. Help us in our lack of love, our lack of belief. Help us to dig through your word as for treasure. Help us to grow in the knowledge of what it says and what it is and to trust it. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.